If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word and turn to your Bibles to the book of Exodus, book of Exodus, chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 33, Exodus 12, 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they, had, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leaven, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to Yahweh by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, Yahweh brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Amen. May we give heed to the word of our God this morning. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you lead my mouth, that I might speak clearly, that I might take that which your Spirit has given by way of this week's work in, in putting together this sermon to bring it to fruition, to bring it with bold, the boldness of that the Holy Spirit provides, the people would be fed, that in that feeding, that nourishment would not only sustain them, but that nourishment would give them what they need to grow in the spiritual, uh, the spiritual growth, the spiritual maturity, that we as a people of God would more clearly be witnesses unto a darkened world and show the love of Christ. For your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. Well, the, the title of this message for this week is, Why is Oneness Such a Big Deal? And as I studied this, I realized that the more I studied, the more questions I had of oneness of my own self. And so this week was a, a blessing to work through and to grasp more, more keenly what oneness is. And it got me thinking, do we, am I the only one that doesn't necessarily grasp what this is and maybe confines it to a one-sided understanding? Let, let me explain. Have you ever considered what role oneness plays in bringing comfort, peace, joy in a marriage? That's where you hear oneness mostly referred to in the Christian community, the Christian culture. And if you ask a husband or a wife, any husband or wife that belongs to or is, takes part in a, in a marriage and both are Christians, you will, if you ask them about oneness, you'll get an in-depth, involved response typically, meaning that there, there's significance, there's importance. They realize that it's carried them through some of the difficult times. Well, on the opposite side of that, if you ask a child, even an adult child, the importance of oneness, when they came out of a broken home, they can tell you the flip side. When oneness is not there, the result of the dysfunction, the disorder, the, the, the relational pain that they have felt because that element was missing from their parents' marriage. Have you ever considered that oneness is actually not exclusive to marriage? That's important to all of us. That, that we all ask that question of relational intimacy. I want it. I need it. I cannot understand it. I am this, this relational being that seeks it. I want oneness. It's not exclusive in a marriage. This, this sermon does not leave out 50% of you here in the audience that, that may be single, young, preteen, teenage, college, wanting to be married, maybe having, you're in the midst of a difficult marriage. Maybe your spouse isn't Christian and you don't know oneness. Maybe your spouse was Christian and she is gone or he is gone to be unto the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord and you miss desperately that oneness. Is there another oneness that we're, our souls seek for, that our souls long for? And the answer to that is yes. And today we will take a deeper dive into Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about this oneness. And I hope to give you what is referred to by theologians as the biblical theology over the, over the or the overarching understanding of oneness. Not just the oneness we're going to see in our verse, but what does the whole Bible have to say about it? And so it's going to be a little bit of a journey. And, and you can see as you look over at your uh, bulletin, if you look on the back side of it, it's quite an involved outline. And the reason it is is because I don't want to lose anybody. I'm a person who is visual, and if I can't visualize it, I get lost and once I get lost on a point, I'm behind and I'm playing catch-up and I've missed the sermon. So I want to make it easy on you. 
If you, you start to daydream, you got something to anchor you. If you're confused on what I'm saying, maybe I said it better in writing than I did when I'm up here. Hopefully, we can see this beautiful thing called oneness. We can understand it. And hopefully, the takeaway that you leave with today, because Christmas time is a time that is oftentimes difficult because people lack oneness for the various reasons that I just explained. It can be a difficult time when you've lost a loved one or you ponder the brokenness of your family or you want to be reconciled to this person or whatever it happens to be. Many people can get lost and can, can get lost in the crowd, so to speak. They don't feel the comfort, the joy, the peace of the Lord's oneness. And so the takeaway is, while the evil one threatens the division and destruction of God's kingdom, we can be confident that God's oneness will faithfully sustain us. Even sustain us at sometimes difficult times, such as the times we are in now. Well, let's take a look at oneness as it relates to God's design for, for creation. And, and actually, I would, I'm going to take a moment here and go over the outline so you can see this progression. So not only do we see oneness in God's design for creation, but we see oneness as the economy of God's kingdom. And then lastly, the third bullet point there, uh, Roman numeral bullet point, is oneness is the most intimate relationship, relationship possible for mankind. It is the ultimate relationship. That's one of the reasons why we have this need to seek it. Well, let's take a look at oneness as God's design for creation. And I've laid out there that creation, as we know it, and what God was doing, God first creates the realms. And you think of, I like to think of it easily by way from top to bottom, sky, and this isn't the exact order, sky, uh, land, and sea. And he fills the, ra- the realms with his creatures, his creations that, that work in harmony or in unison with one another to make up the one realm we know as the physical world, the earth. Well, we see this oneness also in the relationship. We've talked about this before. For some of you who haven't been here before, the Garden of Eden, when we look at this Garden of Eden where God placed man and woman into it, they were ta- he's, Adam's taken out of, well, I'll say Adam and Eve are taken, correctly saying Adam and Eve are taken out of the wilderness and placed by God into the garden. This garden is a unique place because this garden is where God is. It's where he dwells with man. We have heaven and earth overlapping right here in the garden. There is oneness in the relationship as far as the community of God. The invisible realm and the visible physical realm overlap in the garden. And that's important because you will see that same truth borne out. I've talked about this over and over again. When Christ comes again, the realms are completely made right. In fact, as you look for man's purpose, you actually can see that man was given the purpose to rule the earth. He is God's physical representation, he and she, of that creature which is able to image God to all he has created and rule as God. That's what makes us human beings unique. We can image, we were made to image, and we were made to rule over. And in this sense, 
What Adam and Eve were called to do was to expand the oneness, the perfect unity that man had with God in the garden until it covered the face of the earth. What is Jesus Christ going to do upon his return? He's going to remove out the sinner. He brings heaven down, and now the entire earth is what the first Adam was supposed to accomplish. The second Adam perfectly accomplishes, and we have the two realms dwelling together in oneness. It's a perfect beauty. It is the DNA. It is the design. It is the wiring baked into each of us. That's why we, we long for oneness, because that's how we were designed. Without oneness, we know we're off. It's not the exact right fit. We are missing something. Well, let's move forward to Exodus in a general sense. What do we find in Exodus? Do we find man ruling as he's supposed to over the earth, expanding the garden? No. We find Satan's reign of division and destruction. And we know that came from the fall. We see Satan now in control. In fact, Pharaoh is the one who wears the little emblem in his royal hat that is the snake figure, the figure of a serpent, that it should stand out to the Jewish people that this is the one who represents Satan. He is the one in control. And what is he doing? We see that God's family that he has been raising up in Genesis, this, this lineage that came from the patriarchs, where are they? They are enslaved. They are divided out of the population. They are, const they are facing constant threat of death and destruction. Exactly the opposite of oneness. Exactly what the devil wants and intends to do. He wants to bring chaos. He wants to bring death. He wants to bring division. He wants nothing to do with our oneness of God. And we need to realize that even in our relationships, we need to realize that he is the enemy that we are in opposition to, that we should be fighting against. And yet we see something happens unique in Exodus. We are told that Yahweh visits Moses. The word there for, is visits in the Hebrew. And I, I love that it's almost like it's a, it's a poetic statement because, or poetic use of the word because it's, it so undersells what really happened. The second person of the Trinity shows up in a burning bush and says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. The second person of the Trinity in, intrudes upon mankind to begin this process of salvation. When he says, I am Yahweh, or I, am, I should say, I am who I am, and he identifies himself as Yahweh, he is stating that I am the one that has always existed, and thus, ergo, that means everything that exists, exists by my power. I am the Almighty. So he's setting the stage up against the one who is on earth that is portraying himself that is standing as the representative of Satan and the satanic world and his power. 
And we know what happens next. We, we've gone through, we're in Exodus uh, chapter 12, and we've seen the ten plagues and how it destroyed everything that resembled the power of Satan's kingdom and how it was targeted at the various false gods, those spiritual beings that put themselves up as gods, and God proved you were, they were no gods. They were created spiritual beings that they worshipped, and they did not have the power that God has. And that, at this very moment, we see something unique happening in our passage today. And what he is doing is addressing the oneness issue. Listen to Exodus 12, 37 to 38. It's not the text we're going to be focused on. We're going to be more so focused on 43 to 49. But it gives us some idea of this oneness issue. Listen to this, Exodus 12, 37 to 38. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And here's the key word, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and there was very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Who are this, or what peoples make up this mixed multitude? This mixed multitude are those that are not the Israelites that experienced the first Passover meal. These are the others that have not experienced the Passover meal, that are, being, that are coming out of Egypt with the Israelites. What to do with this mixed multitude? Is it the fact that we have a mixed multitude and we don't have a a pure Israel? Is that the problem? No. That's actually not the problem. That's the consequence of sin, this division of people. The actual problem is that that we are lacking oneness in the people of God. So God lays out who will be the people, the covenant community of God. And we turn to Exodus 12, 43 to 45. And then I'm also going to pull in 48a. A is just a way of saying the first half. When we look at the, the oneness of the economy of God's kingdom, let's take a look at this. One people. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute. That's a, a, another way you could call it. This is the regulation. This is what's going to regulate who's, who are part of the people, or at least the part of the people, and we're going to get to this, who get to, p- to participate in this institution that I am instituting, this Passover meal. He's talking about the meal that they will have in the future. So he's pointing forward and he's institutionalizing this meal. This is the statute or the regulation of the pastor, or excuse me, Passover. No foreigner, in other words, no temporary resident whose allegiance is not to me. Their allegiance is to their country that they have come from. They may be in the country, but they are foreigners in this country because it's not their country. But they don't want to be part of this country. And this, the, when he's speaking to foreigner, he's going to explain it at the back end. He's talking to Israel, looking ahead when Israel is the native. Israel are the, the residents of the promised land known as Canaan. 
So when you, when you think foreigner, you think somebody who is not from the people of Israel, and they are going to be wandering in the promised land. And, and Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute or the regulation of the Passover. No foreigner, no, no temporary residence whose, whose allegiance is to another company, another country. No one who ha- is willfully alienated from me. In the presence of Israel, you had to make a decision. Do you want to be a part of the community? Or do you want to remain a part of another community? This is willful alienation on their part of not only Yahweh, but the people of Yahweh. Let's continue on. He says, shall eat of it. They're not going to be eating of it. And verse 44, 44, but every foreigner, and I want to, I want to qualify who the foreigner, excuse me, every slave, but every slave, I want to qualify who the slave is here, speaking of a foreign slave. In the Hebrew system, they allowed yourself to be put into slavery to somebody else that you were indebted to, and you would pay off that. It's not talking about that. This is a foreign slave who has been purchased. You're going to see this. But every foreign slave, in other words, uh, but every foreign slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. And we'll get to the, the circumcision part of it. The interesting thing about Israel that was unique about their form of slavery as opposed to the ancient Near East is that the slave was brought into the family. The slave was treated as a family member. It's almost as if they were absorbed into the family. And thus, once they're circumcised, once they're marked, they're sealed with the mark, they're part of the covenant community. Let's continue on. In verse 45, he, he again speaks of the foreigner. No foreigner or, and then he's, now he's going to go off, this is a different word, or hired worker. Those who are only there for the job. Again, they are not interested in, the, in allegiance or alliance or being part of the community, the covenant community of Israel. They're just there to perform a job, and then when I'm done, I'm out. I'm going to go on to wherever, next country, back to my old country, whatever it might be. So we, we can see that the slave is brought into the family, of the covenant family. And then we jump over to 48, in the first half of verse 48. If a stranger... I love this word. The, the Hebrew actually says it this way. If a sojourner who sojourns, he, he uses a... A different, he uses the noun and the verb right next to each other, which means he's emphasizing. That's what happens in the Hebrew language. But I like that the ESV doesn't put sojourner because we don't know what this means. As it, we sometimes don't get that so much as a stranger. Let me let me explain this a little bit further. So a sojourner or a stranger was a long-term foreigner who chose to engage with the covenant people. He said, "Look, I'm from there." but I want to be a part of you. My allegiance is to you. I want to engage in this community. I want to be a part of this community. So they were able to be marked. Their allegiance was sealed by this mark, and God said, this is the means. That this people is made one. We can see that in God's kingdom... And you can read it right there on your uh, bulletin that there are only one people. 
And we see that slaves are elevated and treated as family in God's kingdom. Think we were all slaves at one time to sin. Praise be to God, but by the work of Christ, we were once slaves to sin, and now we are willful slaves to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Amen. And it talks about strangers, these, these strangers, or, the, or you might say to them, because they're foreigners, they're outsiders. They are brought in and treated as insiders. We're not Jews, folks. I don't know. Some of you, I see some new faces. Maybe you, you were brought up in Judaism, and I don't know that yet. But most of us were not brought up in Judaism. We are the outsiders. We are the Gentiles. We are the ones that say, praise be to God that you had a plan to bring us in all along. Let's look at that plan. Listen to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God is going to pick one man out of the nations. He's going to pick one man out of an evil nation. And he's going to start his covenant family with him. And then out of this man, Abram, is going to come the, 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 the patriarchal system, the, fam, the patriarchs that will found and be the, the founding fathers of the people of Israel. Listen to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. See the so next there? Here comes the purpose clause. What's the purpose? At least one of the purposes of God making them great so that you will be a blessing. All right, what does that mean? That is, I mean, when you hear blessing, you think, well, that could go any direction. There's many ways to bless. Let's see if if God narrows this down a little bit. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then we get to the the, the, the part of the verse that explains it further as far as what this blessing is. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first covenant he makes with his chosen people, it's just chosen person, Abraham and his offspring, is one that says, look, one day I'm going to use you to bring blessing. Now, what, what do they stay, understand at that time? Probably not much. God needs to reveal more. We're on the benefit of being on this side of Jesus Christ, on this side of understanding and all of the revelation of the New Testament. And we look back over the Old Testament and we can look and we can see that this blessing, as it relates to the context of today, a portion of this blessing is the oneness God is doing, bringing back that dynamic That DNA of how the kingdom works is being brought into the picture again. And he is bringing back a people that is one. Like we saw the people were intended when Adam and Eve were in the garden. We see that oneness of God's people. And it is a beautiful picture. But we also see here the one house. Exodus 12, excuse me, Exodus 12 verse 46 When he gets to the word one house, I can tell you in the Hebrew, the way it's constructed, it lets you know this is the major point of this verse, and then it has supporting points behind it. So let's take a look at this. It says this in verse 46, it shall be eaten in one house. In other words, each family, and we saw this earlier when he was describing what would take place by family at the beginning part of chapter 12, the the families would all take place 
part of the Passover. And if you were a small family, you couldn't provide, you didn't have the, the ability to have the, the, uh, the lamb to sacrifice, then you would come underneath the roof of the household. Your household would come together and make up one house where you would celebrate this. You see the uniting underneath one house. Each family partaking of the same memorial feast on the same day. This is what is being pictured here. And he says, you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. And you go, what does that have to do with the tea in China? I don't understand that at all. And the, the understanding is, look, to do so was common. You could do that with any other food. You don't do that with the sacrifice. This, this sacrifice shall not be profaned by common use. You shall keep it in the one house. Furthermore, interesting enough, one commentator said it also keeps it out of the hands by profaning it and putting it in the hands of those that are, the, that are chosen. They willfully alienated themselves. They do not partake in this meal. This meal is, is particular to those who are within the kingdom covenant, the kingdom community. He continues on. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. This is fascinating. There were so many commentators. I, I, I racked my brain looking for, give me the one that I know for sure, for sure, for sure. So many commentators were pragmatic on this. And I can appreciate the pragmatics, but I need theology. I can't preach it without, with, just based on pragmatics. Maybe if I did, I'd have to say this is only pragmatics and leave it at that. I think one commentator of the ones that I looked at, came the closest, and I feel comfortable sharing what, I, what he is best guess is. This, this man is a, a, a oh, I'm going to get this wrong. He's the one that studies Egyptians and Babylonians. I can't think of the term, but this is his area of study, these cultures. And he says this, the wholeness of the victim, in other words, the sacrificial lamb, symbolizes the communal oneness character of the sacrifice. That is, it emphasizes the cohesion of the family unit at worship. So there's that oneness aspect. But we do know that one commentator was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's not his own commentary. It's the Holy Spirit's commentary. The Holy Spirit allows us to know, in addition to whatever that was, this is used in the New Testament. In fact, the, the Apostle John says this. He's using it as a means to say, oh, you know that lamb that was the first lamb that atoned for and made possible for our salvation? We did not have our firstborn die because that lamb died for us. Well, that lamb is actually looking forward to the lamb. Let's see what he does in this identity. In John 19, 31 to 36, John writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and he's speaking of the, the crucifixion of Christ. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. They need to get them down off those crosses before sundown, before the beginning of the next day, the Passover. They, 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 this is their, 
their priority and their, in their tradition instead of realizing the one they're asking to have the legs broken is the one who is atoning or would atone for them, but they refuse his atonement. Continues on. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, speaking of the criminals, and of the other who had been crucified with them. So both of the criminals' legs are broken. They asphyxiate very quickly. They are dead. They are going to be able to be removed off the cross. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, John is referring to himself, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe, and here's the key, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb that died for the sins of the world. And this is identifying it. Now the thrust of the passage is at this time towards the oneness of house. That each house celebrated the meal as a united family and that there were many houses celebrating the Passover at the same time, on the same designated day, acting as one large house as the kingdom of God. That's the picture there, unity. I find this fascinating because the same principle carries forward today. We meet today on the Lord's Day. We are many houses meeting on the Lord's Day to honor to worship that which Christ our Savior has done for us. You can see that unity still there. And let me give you something to, to chew on for a second. Can you see the problem with saying, do you want to start a Saturday night service? I've been part of churches that have Saturday night services. And it seems pragmatically practical Yeah, that'll make it convenient. More of our people can come. But do you see now the problem with it? It breaks that beautiful picture of the oneness that we have when we meet on the Lord's day, the day that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, the first day of the week, and indicating that there is a new work that has been done, this work of salvation. We have the ultimate salvation all the Old Testament, lots of the New Testament looks back to it. That is the greatest work of salvation. And then the New Testament looks back and says, yeah, but look at this. Everything from that was pointing to this. This is the new work where God now rests. Jesus Christ rests as the Savior that has completed the work of saving us out of the kingdom of darkness. That's why we meet on the Lord's Day, sometimes referred to as the Christian Sabbath. Because it has moved from the last day when creation, when God rested from the physical creation, and it points to the new, the first day of the new week, the resting of Christ from the work of spiritual salvation. The work he completed has made it possible for us to partake, us to be a part of the people of God. Well, let's look at the one law now. Verses 44 to 40, excuse me, 47 to 49. 
says this, all the congregation, the whole covenant community, speaking of Jew and Gentile, of Israel shall keep it. Now, speaking of those that fit this condition, that they, they have given allegiance, they are participating in circumcision. They, are, they, they did once participate. It's not a continuing thing. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. In other words, th- this one is seen as, as, look, if you're going to be a, a part of this journeying with us, everybody that is, is under the, the same standard that all the males must be circumcised. It's the oneness of house. Let's continue on. Then he may come near and keep it. The idea is celebrate it. He shall be as a native of the land. That's what we're speaking of, that the Israelites in the, in the promised land are the native. Uh, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among them. One. Praise be to God there's one. Because if there was a different type of law for you and me, a different salvation, a works-based salvation for us, We'd be in deep trouble. There's one law. Circumcision was the one law that governed stranger and Israelite alike in the partaking of the meal. The meal is significant because it points ultimately to salvation. It points to the sacrificial giving of the lamb, his life for ours. It is what we experience in salvation that Christ has accomplished. Paul says this, because we don't, our context for this circumcision, I can tell you this, as, a, as a, a man who has had six sons, as a young Christian, the only time I ever dealt with as a, as a learning and growing uh, Christian, dealt with the issue of circumcision, is when one of my sons were born. Do you or don't you? You know, you look at it as a father, you go, is it a health issue? Is it a tradition? Do, do we Christians do this? Do we have to do this? I don't know. We don't have a context for, for, the, for circumcision today like they did. We, we oftentimes miss it. But Paul helps us out. Paul, according to Romans 4.11, says this, and, and we're getting this context by looking back. When, don't read the context today, meaning that it applies today, like we, as part of the covenant community, all our males have to do, be this way. But according to Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had, and here's the key, by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was the seal. It says, ultimately, it was pointing forward. Now, it gained you entrance into the covenant community in a physical sense, but it was pointing to your entrance into the universal church, the church across that spans all time, the church, the saved church, the kingdom of light. So when we hear this, or we, 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 when we read this about circumcision, we need to understand that it is dealing with the issue of faith. Faith is the law, if you will. In fact, I was pleased to be reminded when I'm searching for this that in Romans 3.27, Paul himself refers to the law of faith. You want to know the standard? You want to know the law for entrance into the covenant community, for entrance into salvation? It's faith. We know that. It always has been. He is emphasizing that because an uncircumcised Abram 
It was counted to him as righteousness because of his faith, his belief, his trust in what God said he was going to do. And so we know that the one law is faith. Well, let's look at this final step. And this is the part where the rubber meets the road for you and me. This is where it gets really personal. This is where we hopefully understand oneness at a deeper level. Oneness is the most intimate relation possible for mankind. And let's look. You can, you can see I've referenced the, the, the passage numbers if you want to turn with me uh, to those passage numbers. Oneness, it is a oneness that is, and then the first bullet point or sub-bullet point there, A, is made possible through Christ's death. I find it amazing that all of this oneness that I'm about ready to share with you comes from the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ before his crucifixion. He has this interceding need in his heart to pray for his sheep that have been given to him by the Father. I'm going to have to depart, and he's praying that God the Father would continue on in his shepherding. Listen to this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his voice to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The idea of them knowing you, that they are in such intimate, relational knowledge of you. The Hebrews, back, back at the beginning of Exodus, they don't even know who Yahweh is. They know that their fathers worship the patriarchal God, or the God of their patriarchs, but as far as actually knowing who he is, they don't know. And that's what's going to happen in the wilderness. That's what's going to happen when he takes them out into there. He's going to make sure they know who he is. Let me read this again. And this is eternal life, verse 3, that they know that they have oneness, in other words, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What a beautiful picture of intimacy. And let me explain that this intimacy is divine. This intimacy cannot be grasped in the one-to-one relationship from, from believer to believer exclusively. This is a divine interest, intimacy. Let me, let me read to you. John, now we've got to jump to the end of the, of the passage, the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer, 1720 to 22. I do not ask for these only, but for those who are in, that are there, that are his disciples, but also those who will believe in me through their word. That would be you and me. That they may all be one. Oh, here's the one that's coming out clear. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may, may believe that you have sent me. Oh, this is, this is crazy. I can have a relationship, you can have a relationship with God where the oneness is as Jesus, as, as Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. That relationship, meaning that, that I'm, I'm speaking of God allowing himself to be so known to us that he is in us. We know that as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That relationship can only occur divinely by God. 
through the act of salvation. It is not to be lightly taken. And he continues on. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What glory are you speaking of? There's different theologians that believe different things. I believe with, the, with a group of theologians that this glory, God brought glory to Jesus and that Jesus was capable. Jesus completed, maybe is a better way of saying it, all that God caused, that he was called to do. Jesus lived a perfect life. That means that Jesus, when Hebrews talks about Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father, Jesus manifested God's attributes perfectly. Thus, he was given the glory. And so we go this. And this is the, excuse me, I'm uh, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. We have the ability to have glory, to bring glory to God, to have glory and bring glory to God when we demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit in us that we manifest the attributes of the invisible God as the image bearers we were designed to be. Let me say it to you this way. You don't feel very close to God sometimes? I understand. There's dark, there's dark providences. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy sometimes, but I'm telling you in the, middle, in the midst of those dark providences, those difficult times, if you want to sense more intensely the oneness that you have with God, Demonstrate his attributes. Demonstrate who you are. You were created to reflect, to image the attributes of God, the invisible God, to a physical reality. That's how you were designed. When you fulfill that, how you have been designed, you will sense the oneness of God. You cannot help but sense that because you can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And finally, we leave it with this. This is, this, is, this is somewhat surprising to me. I expected it to read differently when I read this verse. Verse 23, uh, we see that this oneness is made, um, before I read it, I'm going to give a little uh, uh, overview of it. This made, oneness is made observable to the world through not my love to God. God loves for us. God is allowing me to have God dwell in me. God shows me the incredible love that he has for me, and that's what the world sees. When you are distinctly different, set apart, holy, I'm on, I'm on, holy meaning both morally as God has called you to be, demonstrating the attributes of God, but holy in the sense that you're so distinctly set apart You, let me put it this way, the world will see God's love for you. Now, they hate it. Oh, they hate it. And they want to persecute you for it. But they know it. They know it in a sense that they don't want you to have it. I'm going to read this scripture now. In them, excuse me, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That's what God is showing the world when we are engaged in the oneness that he designed for us, in the oneness that is possible for us to feel, tangibly experience 
even in the difficulty, and I might even say more clearly, comprehend in difficulty. Why is it that we all long for relational intimacy? It's because that's how we were wired. That's how we were created. Don't stop seeking it. Let us leave with this, hopefully, word of encouragement. It's our takeaway for the day. While the evil one threatens division and destruction of God's kingdom, oh, do we see it raging today, we can be confident that God's oneness has will faithfully sustain us, demonstrate his love for us, and demonstrate it to a lost world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a gracious gift this oneness is. For me, what an overlooked part of the DNA, the, the economy of your kingdom, sometimes so taken for granted in my own life. Father, I pray that you will make this real in our lives, that we will seek it with an intensity. We will seek it because we want to bring honor and glory to you. We want, to, we want the world to see the love you have for us, not for reasons of them wanting to bring ill will towards us, but rather that that distinction will, be, will cause people to say, I want that. Whatever that is, I want it. Because you are comforted, you have joy, you have peace in the midst of the storm, and I have none of that in my world. Father, let this be the truth, the economy of our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.